This episode of the Expat Cast is brought to you by Lingoda. They are the number one European language school and they are fully online. They don't just offer German. They also offer English, business English, Spanish, and French. They offer classes 24-7. You can sign up for whatever time slot and level works for you. And right now they are getting ready to start a sprint. That means if you sign up for the sprint by April 16th, you're challenging yourself essentially to complete either 15 or 30 courses per month for three months. And if you meet that goal, you can get 50 or 100% of your cash back. Go ahead and click the link in the show notes now to get more information. Don't forget to use the code expatcast to save 10 euros on your deposit for the sprint. If you're wondering how the classes are, well, I actually took a couple classes myself. I've been trying to work on my French and I'm not going to say I'm fluent, but I mean, I might be. Listen to this. Je suis américaine. Je vis en Allemagne. J'ai un podcast. J'apprends le français. But that's pretty good, right? Not bad for just a handful of courses. And it's definitely got me motivated to keep going. And I had fun along the way. Even if I sound really ridiculous with my American and also slightly German accent that I'm using in French. I got at least this far thanks to Lingoda's classes. And you can too. So again, click the link in the show notes for more information and use the code expatcast when you're signing up for the sprint. Thanks, Lingoda, for partnering with the show. Welcome to the Expat Cast. This is the podcast where expats share their stories about fitting in, standing out, and every mishap on the journey to finding home abroad. I'm your host, Nicole. I have one quick reminder before we dive into today's episode, and that is that I'm doing an event with Mitra in a week from today, April 15th, 2021 at 2 p.m. Germany time. The webinar is all about my experience moving to Germany and settling into my career and how I made my career work. Podcasting is just my my side hustle, my passion project. My day job is as a librarian, so I actually work as a civil servant. And that is a very specific line of work librarianship is. And working in the public service is also a very specific experience that I've definitely noticed has a lot of differences to working for private companies. So in this event, we're going to get all into it. It's called Podcasting Paperwork and the Public Service. I'm linking to the event in the show notes. Oh, I did want to say one more thing. I got a lot of really positive feedback from the episode last week with Sean. So I guess everyone's telling me to just quit and let Sean take over my show. Fine, fine. Um, Just kidding. (laughs) That's not what you guys said. But you did say that you really enjoyed the episode and that made me very happy to hear. I know I'm very lucky to have Sean as a colleague of sorts in this weird podcast land Of course, you can, as always, manifest those positive feelings into reviews for the podcast. That's the very best thing you can do to help me out. Ratings and reviews, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser, and you can also leave a review directly on my website. And in all of those cases, that's just a huge way to help the show grow and help reach new audiences, help use the weird world of algorithms in my favor. (laughs) And personally, uh, for me, they just really make my day. So feel free, if you haven't already done so, to go ahead on one of those sites and leave a review. I appreciate it. All right, now on to today's episode. Rather than tell you what it's all about, I'm going to let the episode do the talking. We explain it all in the episode. So go ahead and enjoy. (music) 
I am Johanna Tons-Ravelson. I call Vermont in the United States home, but I've been living here in Heidelberg in Germany I think a little bit over three years. And had you lived anywhere between Vermont and Heidelberg? Many places. <laughs> so Vermont is home, but I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. And then I did a high school exchange program when I was 16 in Nîmes in southern France. After I graduated high school, I went back to France and lived in Paris for a year. And then I went back to the U.S. and in my junior year of college, went to Copenhagen. I was in Copenhagen for a year. And after Copenhagen, <laughs> to the U.S. to finish my undergrad and then I moved to Berlin with my husband. We were there for two years. We went back to the U.S. We went to New York. I did got my master's in social work at Columbia University in New York. And then we went to Vermont. <laughs> and <laughs> Vermont, we arrived here. Wow, that is a solid ping-ponging. <laughs> yeah, I, felt, I found myself getting like a little breathless with that list because it was just... Well, it's funny, too, because often I find people move around in one country or continent and then hop over to the other, move around there. But you were really back and forth and back and forth. So you must have gotten really good at packing a suitcase. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I, I felt really good about only having things that, you know, filled the contents of one suitcase for many years. It's interesting with your story, the way it was a couple different study abroad trips or gap year kind of thing. Do you remember if there was a moment or a time along that whole era where you started to think like, oh, this isn't just a thing I keep doing, but rather I'm going to live abroad, like this is going to be a part of my life? Oh, that's a good question. But I don't, I'm not really sure um, because there were so many different phases to it. There's sort of the phase where I was on my own and that that didn't necessarily feel like it was going to last my entire life, but it did feel like it was going to be something I did for a period of time. And then the move to Berlin was so intentional. I moved there because my husband is German and he was still getting his degree and I had finished. Um, and so that felt like a really different type of move because it felt like I was there was a purpose behind it. It wasn't just about me. That obviously, you know, <laughs> being in a relationship with someone from another country also just kind of you're the question of where you're going to live for the rest of your life is kind of a standing question that, at least for us, I think hasn't been answered yet and maybe will never be answered. I really wonder if there's a expat version of the that sentence, life's what happens when you have other plans or something <laughs> like that, right? Like everyone's back and forth. Where should I live? Should I live here? Should I live there? Where do we want to do this? And then life just happens and you end up places and then that's where you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And definitely, I think that there was a point, a really, really helpful point <laughs> Where we stopped trying to answer that question, that was a big turning point for us because it, it took up a lot of our time trying to figure out where we were going to live for so many years. And then eventually we're like, well, this is an unanswerable question. And so we'll just see how things go. Where did motherhood come into the journey for you? I guess both geographically and in this whole conversation of, yeah, this larger conversation about where you want it to be. So both my kids were born in Vermont. My son is nine and my daughter is five. So yeah, we, we were settled in a sense, like we had, I'd, we'd both kind of finished studying, we both had jobs, um, we had moved to Vermont for my job. And in terms of, you know, I think it, it both kind of clarified things for at least for the in the short term, <laughs> in that we, were, we had our kids and they were taking up a lot of our time. And so we weren't necessarily like mulling over the question of where we wanted to be. But it brought up other questions, of course, in terms of, you know, how much time they had with our grandparents and, and going back and forth and also kind of what, what ways we wanted to, to raise them, um, what languages we wanted to raise them with. 
and how familiar we wanted them to be with each of our cultures. When my son was five, um, we always kind of knew that at some point we wanted to go back to Germany just because it felt really important to have them have experiences with both countries and, and languages. And it was a really perfect time because in the U.S. he would have been starting school, but in Germany he had one more year of kindergarten. So we moved when he had when he was five, and then he started school the following year. And that move and that timing was intentional then based on his schooling or was it also coordinated with a job situation? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> there was no job. Um, no, yeah, it was really, it was inten- it was intentional in the sense that we knew it was a really good time. We knew that it would have been a lot harder for him to enter school in Germany without having lived here before that point because Although my husband always spoke German with him, he his German wasn't all that strong. So we we knew that we, if we wanted to leave the door open to being in Germany, it was pretty important to go, yeah, before he started school. And you guys went to Heidelberg then? Yes. And how did you choose Heidelberg and not Berlin where you were before? That's a great question. Also, um, I don't have a great answer for it other than... <laughs> My husband's from Northern Germany, but he studied in Heidelberg. So both he and I knew Heidelberg decently well. We connected with some old friends that we had here in Heidelberg and it just, everything kind of fell into place. And so we ended up here. When you're making this move, did things like, oh, I don't know, like the independence that a kid has here or do things like the different parenting approaches in both countries or, the, the you know, things like Kindergeld, so the, the monthly allowance the government gives you here in Germany um, per child, to what extent were you aware of any of that and to what extent was this factoring in in addition to settling your kids into the culture, into the language before school started? You know, in a lot of ways, I think we didn't necessarily have to navigate the differences because Vermont has a culture all of its own. (laughs) And the parenting and in terms of support for families, it's actually a lot more similar to Germany than maybe other places in the U.S. And so some of the things that would have been really a stark difference were less so a stark difference. So I would say absolutely kind of the the exposing them to the language and the culture, also being closer to my husband's side of the family. Those were all really big priorities. It definitely, I mean, it was, it was a really hard decision, to, totally honest. It, <laughs> we loved where we were living and we felt we had sort of set down some roots but it was an important decision. And I think we never would have felt comfortable if we hadn't made the move simply because it would have just left like a lot of questions unanswered about what things would be like or what our kids would be able to have access to. I love a lot of things about their life here. I love the fact that they are really independent. I really appreciate, um, obviously, I like the the kindergarten that we get every month. <laughs> and and one of the things that unfortunately, I say this unfortunately because it's just, I hate, I you know, I, it's not so nice when these very, very pragmatic things come into the picture when there's a lot of other like emotions and, and things that I think are, are equally important. But the fact that if, you know, they go on to university, the, the very, very different costs of that here versus in the U.S., plays a pretty big factor in my mind right now, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the weird contrast when making these kind of decisions, because so much of it is emotional. But then there's this huge practical part. And I think it's always so interesting to hear for each family how they decide which part weighs out more than the other. Those two things are 
just battling, I think, in a lot of us in a lot of different ways, but with families especially. Yeah. And if anyone had an equation to help muddle our way through that issue or those different issues that crop up, I would love to know because I I think it's it's a conversation that we're having constantly here at home. And I know that with a lot of my friends who are bi-national, it's a big question. Well, and your kids are nine and five. And one of the factors is university costs. So obviously there's a good decade between those two, Mm -hmm. at least. In Germany, there's a tracking system that goes into place, I believe, starting in the fourth grade. Is that correct? Yes. Do you want to explain a little bit about what that is and then how or if that is playing into your your particular equation? Yeah. So my son right now is in third grade. So right now it's, I mean, this in quotes, it's a pretty like high pressure year. And I put it in quotes because I, I just, I can't, I can't really fathom that. <laughs> it's a year where they're really going to be at the end of this year, going into the next year when he's in fourth grade, making a decision about where he goes, which level of school. So there are three different options. Kids are then put into one of the three tracks based on a recommendation from the teacher, as well as the decision of the parents. I will be totally honest. I think actually the school, the experience so far has been something that I am really uncomfortable with. It's a pretty high pressure system. And and my son is not a kid who necessarily responds all that well to pressure. So I'm really, I'm really torn about it, honestly. It's, there's a lot of benefits. Like I think that there's a lot of then kind of more individualized attention or more specific instruction to the level of the students. But when I was in France, so when I was a high school student in France, they also have a tracking system. Um, it happens a lot later. I, so I, as a student, kind of experienced what it was like to be in that type of environment. And at the age of 16, it really, really distinctly s- separated kids based on some pretty arbitrary markers. Right. And I, I mean, I've definitely heard part of the debate in Germany ties into Right. Your your kid is totally, fully still a kid when they're in fourth grade or third grade, which is really the deciding. And there's so much growth that happens. But these tracks, I mean, I suppose it's technically not impossible to change tracks, but one path is towards university. Whereas in comparison, the other, there's a track where I think you can stop school at what, 14 or something like that. And then there's a middle one. So there, it's theoretically nice in that there's a path for a variety of different approaches and, and goals in life, but it's not so nice in that that pressure is on when you are a child and it is pretty irreversible. And that's a lot. And I, I've heard from several people that say that's a real branch in the road for them when they're figuring out where they want to be located. That makes me feel better that other people are going through that because it's a, yeah, it's a really big issue for us. And the other thing that I'll say is it's not just a lot of pressure in for a fourth grader. Um, and also, I mean, it's not just fourth grade, like fourth grade is kind of the end of the road in terms of it's, it's a lot of pressure right now for him in third grade. Um, it was the back of his mind in second grade. Not only that, it's also like, who knows what they want to do with their life when they're in fourth grade. And I mean, I certainly didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Probably like 100 iterations of what I wanted to be between fourth grade and where I actually ended up. And the tracking isn't just kind of university and then other paths. It, I mean, it, it has a pretty direct correlation with what you might be then set up to do for your, you know, professionally in the future. I do want to ask generally what your impressions were back at the get-go when you were making this move. What did you know through your husband, through your own experiences? What did you heard? Um, and how have those shifted over time? 
You know, I feel like I had a pretty good handle. Um, I, I'm a social worker and I studied comparative social welfare state policy. And so I, in terms of sort of family policy here in Germany, I, I had a pretty good handle on what to expect and it panned out the way I thought it would. You know, we we are sort of financially supported in ways that we weren't in the U.S. Well, you know, my kids weren't born here, so we didn't have any family leave time. We didn't have any kind of that immediate support that comes after the birth of a child. So I can't really speak to a personal experience with that. Although um, currently I work as a doula, so I support families through pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. And so um, when I work with international clients, part of that work is helping them navigate the various different options that are available to them after their babies are born. One of the things that I know from partly my own experience and also partly just from my friends is that there can be some really big challenges in, and I'm going to say this generally, but I think it's a bit more specific to women in their kind of re-entering the workforce, if that's something that they want to do. And that that, that can especially be true um, when kids enter school, because it's certainly possible um, if both parents are working but the school system is really set up to have at least one person home. That's a stumbling block that I've seen that I didn't necessarily expect. Well, I would love to get into that even more specifically. Um, let's start with pregnancy and hear a little bit about what that can look like or might look like here in Germany. One of the things that, that a lot of people who, who may not be German but are pregnant find themselves pregnant here in Germany one of the first things that happens is that they are from every from every direction <laughs> they hear that they need to find a midwife. So the midwifery model is pretty strong here in Germany, meaning that pregnancy, birth, and postpartum are really seen as like natural life events and not necessarily a medical emergency, certainly, or a medical event. Families look to find a midwife. And what that means is you know, midwives do many different things. They do provide prenatal support. So they, they can be the person that, they, that families go to for their prenatal care. That's a bit less so the case than it was in the past. They are the ones who are there for the birth, sometimes alongside doctors, sometimes on their own. And they also do postpartum support. So they're the person who comes to the house after a baby's born to check and see how the mom is doing, how the baby's doing. And when people talk about finding a midwife, the person they're talking about is the last, is the sort of the third option, the person who's providing that support after a baby's been born. When I'm, when I'm working with clients or just in general, when I'm talking to people who aren't so familiar with the system, that's one of the things that I really have to like walk through them with them. The process of finding a midwife, because it's not so easy, <laughs> there's a general shortage of midwives all across Germany. And in some places, it can be really extreme so that it is really hard to find a midwife. And then usually in pregnancy, you know, someone who's pregnant has their care provider. It's either an OB doctor or a midwife or a mixture of the two. And they go for all their checkups. The other thing that's new for a lot of people is that that person who's doing their prenatal um, care is likely not going to be the person who's there for the birth. So there, it's a bit of a disjointed system. You kind of get here in pregnancy and then you have kind of whoever is there for the birth, like who, whatever midwife is on that day. And then after the birth, when you, when a family has gone home, the midwife that they had a contract with is the person who comes to their house and, and makes sure that everything's okay and supports them in their early weeks to some extent, months of having their baby. 
And is that set by insurance or by the doctor or just individually, how long that support lasts after birth? So a family has the right to have support from their midwife through the time that a mother is breastfeeding. And yeah, I mean, this it's covered through the their health insurance. Their individual contract with a midwife is sort of between them and the midwife, but the cost is covered by their health insurance. Man, already all of that is so different um, <laughs> from what I know from the U.S. at least. <laughs> it is different. And for a lot of people, I, I, like, I'd say about 50% of my clients are German and the other 50% are non-German. Um, so I've, I've learned a lot about the many different systems worldwide. <laughs> clients are usually really surprised. There are some pretty big differences. And one of the biggest differences I would say is that for many people, the idea that when they go to the hospital, most people have their babies in hospitals, although birth centers are available, home birth is is an option. But usually when you go to the hospital, you really don't know who's going to be there. And you likely haven't met the midwives in that hospital or the doctors in that hospital. So that can be really off-putting, the idea, like, I'm not going to know who's there when my baby's yeah. born. Yeah, and I want to focus for a minute on especially your non-German clients. That brings a whole nother set of questions and concerns to the whole topic. So for instance, if someone is non-German and non-German speaking, are they likely to find a midwife and to find help that is also um, maybe either in their preferred language or in English, if maybe that's a sort of bridge language? Or is it often the case that people just have to deal with it all in German? Oh, I would say that's so dependent on where they live and what their preferred language is. Probably mo- most places in Germany, it, there are midwives who likely speak you know, English or maybe another language. Like I said, there is really a pretty extreme midwife shortage in Germany. And so even though that midwife might be there, that might, she may not have capacity. And so that is another barrier. I definitely know people who have had some pretty significant language barriers with their midwife. And in some cases that works, they, they kind of figure it out regardless. And in other cases, it's a pretty big barrier. Um, and I'll say another thing, which is that it's not just really a language barrier. It's oftentimes a cultural barrier. It's really hard to even know what those ingrained cultural beliefs and values are re- regarding like baby care or new parenthood. Um, until you're like in it. <laughs> and so some things that happen, I, I see, I find, I think a lot more with my international clients is that what their midwife is recommending or kind of ordering is different from like what they grew up experiencing or like what they saw around them in terms of like how to take care of a baby or what to expect even emotionally postpartum. And so that can be that can be a challenge because in those really sensitive days and weeks after a baby's born, especially for new parents, where they're feeling really maybe unsure, seeking to have someone that they can trust, if there's anything that kind of gets between them and just really trusting their care provider, it's it, it it's really hard. I want to come back to this and get into this a little bit more, but just to finish sort of the the logistical thread, we talked about schooling and then we talked we've talked about pregnancy and birth. And then let's just kind of fill that gap in what happens between, you know, let's say the midwife situation worked out and they've the parents have figured out how to how to be parents of babies. <laughs> um, how do they get between that point and sending the kid off to to school? Oh, wow. How do they get to that? Um, (laughs) 
you know, they've given, they're given time. It's another thing that I think is so important about the German system that is absolutely sorely lacking in the U.S., which is um, family leave time. The benefit of having a very robust family leave policy where one or both parents can stay home and be there and get used to their baby, their baby can have time with a parent at home. That, that also gives people some breathing room to really figure it out because it takes a long time. So they're figuring it out, everything's figured out. And then depending on kind of what the family constellation is, maybe both parents eventually go back to work. And that is depending on the age of the child, when they go back to work, that can be a bit of a scramble. Because whereas there are, usually it's not too difficult to find a spot for a child in kindergarten as of age three, before age three, it can be a bit challenging to find a kita spot or a krippe for for a younger child. So that can sometimes involve calling around and visiting and getting on a lot of waiting lists and really being maybe a little pushy about it (laughs) to find care for a child. So there's a, there's a fair number of options, but there's not necessarily a clear path for exactly what, you know, how to get care for your child if you're planning to go back to work. So people kind of have to navigate that. And then when kids are about three, around age three, then usually they start in kindergarten. So that's another transition, kindergarten running up until the child starts school, usually around age six. Every step of the way, there's so many cultural things that pop in. Like even just you mentioned, you might have to call around and be pushy. You know what two things are so scary to do as a foreigner? <laughs> First off, calling around and second off, being pushy because being pushy in a non-offensive way involves so much nuance, both linguistically and in, in other forms of communication in body language and all of that. It's really hard. So I want to pull into the conversation now another aspect of your life, which is afloat, because my understanding is afloat exists to help support mothers and parents throughout all of these conflicts and and challenges and unexpected areas where they thought, oh, okay, I just put the kid in Kita and then it's all good. No, no, no. Turns out this is a huge ordeal that's super scary. <laughs> so my understanding is Afloat is there to help out in that process. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and, and how it got started? Yeah. So Afloat is a, we are soon to be sort of a recogn- official recognized nonprofit here in Germany. The focus of Afloat is maternal mental health. It was born out of a personal experience. So the founder of Afloat, Andrea, um, had had the personal experience of going through a postpartum mood disorder and having to then not only manage that, manage new parenthood, but also navigate a very, very unfamiliar medical system, specifically the mental health system here in Germany. That was very (laughs) enlightening to her in terms of the gaps in services uh, for those who are not German or German speaking. And Afloat was kind of born out of that experience. And that's what we do. So we look to really support international families, maybe specifically international mothers here in Germany, with kind of an eye to that mental health side of things. And we do that through just general awareness building. Maternal mental health is something we don't talk about just generally all that much. Postpartum depression, anxiety are things that happen with relative frequency compared to how much it gets talked about or publicized. 
We also know that a lot of the risk factors for postpartum mood disorders are kind of built into the experience of being an international person um, in terms of maybe being further away from family, maybe some social isolation. Because of that, it's so important to us that uh, we build awareness around this topic, but also then have supports in place. So Afloat runs a number of support groups. It was really the silver lining of (laughs) Corona for us because (laughs) it started as something that was going to be in person and only regionally serving the families here in Heidelberg or maybe a bit beyond ended up being something that went Germany wide and our support groups are now all online. So we have a monthly open support group. It's kind of just a dropping group for anyone who wants to join. Uh, We have a moms of color group that meets the first and the third Mondays of the month. And then we have a closed group, meaning that it's a group that stays static. It's the same 10 women uh, that meets every week for eight weeks. And in addition to all of that, we have a warm line, meaning that we take calls and receive emails from people who are looking for someone to just just talk to or um, to get some information about how the German mental health system works or to get direct referrals to, for example, a psychiatrist or a psychologist who may speak their language. This is incredible. Wow. 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 Um, First off, thank you guys for making this happen and doing all of this hard work. This is exactly the kind of stuff I like to feature on the podcast because I'm sure there's someone out there listening to this where they're already having a moment of, I didn't know that this was a problem that other people other than me also experience. Like this is a known pattern thing. That's already such a huge moment of relief. And then to know there's somewhere you can go and turn to. And then I like that you guys also have this open sort of hotline so that maybe someone doesn't find exactly what they're thinking or experiencing on the website, but they can still reach out and start a process of trying to figure out what to do. So that's really great. Yeah. It's grown to something that I, I am really proud of. And I think I think it's become a community. I see, you know, I, I participate in the support groups as a facilitator, but honestly, I mean. I'm a mom too, and uh, I'm going through, or I have gone through a lot of what gets talked about. And there's just so much value in hearing from other people that you're, what you're going through, it's not just, just a going on in your life, but is in some ways almost universal to kind of the experience for everyone. Yeah. And it's really great that it blossomed out of this Corona time and exists in this time, because I think I mean, it's just true with any given situation, throw being a foreigner on top of it, and it's harder, right? Like, that's just kind of how it is. So you take Corona, and you take being a parent and figuring all of that out, and then you throw on, oh, wait, we've been isolated from parts of our family, or we haven't been able to connect with the other friends who help us figure out how to do this stuff. So especially during this time, which is extra isolating and confusing and limiting, it's really powerful to have a place to go to start to talk this stuff out, figure it out. Yeah. And I will say, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to put too glossy a light on this, but I think for some of us international parents, Corona, I mean, it's been a, it's been a horribly stressful experience for everyone and certainly something that is very hard, but it has kind of put us a bit more on equal ground with our 
German friends. Um, some of the things that were just like built into our lives and, you know, being far from family, not necessarily being able to have family or maybe even friends support in childcare or whatever it may be. A lot of my German friends are dealing with that now too, because they're not able to see their families. It's helped me, I guess it's helped my friends have better awareness for what it's actually like to be an international person here and not necessarily have that same level of support. So in that one teeny tiny way, it has been a little helpful. (laughs) Yeah, I actually did an episode way, oh God, almost a year ago now with an expat friend of mine, Aspen. She does a YouTube channel, Aspen Abroad, and we talked about community from a distance. And we said the same thing. It was this weird moment of it's really sad, intense and confusing, but in a strange way, people who are not from here are able to step up and say, hey, Skyping to keep in touch with family, we know how to do this. Let me show you. And it gives you a sense of, oh, hey, I have figured a couple of things out. And it's nice for this thing that's usually maybe a bit more of a separator between two groups of people to be something where that we get to stand up and be leaders in that moment in some way. And like you said, on the other, on the flip side, people can understand a little bit more of what that's like for you, for us. So, I mean, is it worth it all? Like, Certainly not, no. <laughs> no, but it's happening and that's, yeah, I think there's something to be said for, you know, at least there's some good stuff that's that's come out of it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested um, in hearing from you, to what extent do your identities as expat or immigrant or foreigner and then your identity as mom, like how do they overlap? How do they not overlap? How do you reckon with these two parts of your identity? One thing I'll say is I was, I, I guess I'll use the word expat. I, um, I was an expat for many years and then I was an expat and a mom. And it was like, I felt really comfortable as an expat. And then, and I think this happens oftentimes at different phases of your experience where you hit like maybe a different, you know, a different life phase. And then you're kind of like a new expat all over again. And I will say that it definitely is different. It's definitely different to be a parent and navigate being, you know, being a parent and navigate being a parent living away from your home country it also brings up all kinds of questions about identity. I, I mean, my kids don't speak my language as their dominant language, and they they don't really speak my language at all, honestly. I mean, they can, but they don't like to. And my daughter struggles to speak English with my parents, and so it it has implications for our relationship as a larger extended family. Like, it brings up a lot for me about kind of how, like, what role I play in the family. <laughs> I've gotten better at this, but I... I really spoke a lot of German with my kids just because it was easier, especially since we're around their friends all the time. And and I didn't always want to be recognized as, I guess, as an American. Um, so I spoke, I speak, I did, I've gotten so much better at it. So if I, if my kids are speaking German and maybe even I'm speaking German to them and we're doing all this, <laughs> we're like living in Germany and doing all this German stuff, like where, where does my where do, and my history, like, where do I come into play and what kind of, what do I want to transmit to them? It brings up a whole bunch of questions that certainly weren't really a part of my life when I was an expat and not a mom. I guess I'll also say, and I think this is, this is really the power of being, of being living outside of your home country, especially as a parent is, but this is true, you know, in many other ways as well. But 
especially with parenting, like there's just so much advice that you get when you're a parent. There's so many, there's like right ways to do things and wrong ways to do things. And all there's all these parenting books. And then when you're in, you're in another country, they have their right ways and their wrong ways and their parenting books. <laughs> the benefit of being an expat is that if you've seen something recommended in 20 different ways, all ways, supposedly the absolute right way to do it, you start to realize pretty quickly there isn't a right way to do it. And it is very freeing. And if you can kind of block out <laughs> some of the critical voices, it's it's just that much more freeing. So that's what I really, I, I mean, also with families that I work with, but for myself too, I just try to remind myself of that and just do my own thing as a parent. Um, and I think that that really is like the expat power. Totally. Yeah. It's like this power that sometimes feels like not a power at all because you're like, I'm just wrong and different all of the time. And it can feel like a burden. But if you can manage to get that perspective shift where you're like, wait, I'm already wrong or different. So there is no right answer for me anymore. It's already all off the path anyway. So I'll just do something and hope it works. <laughs> yeah. It also means that I like have completely given up, not given up. I never, I don't want to try. It's like if, if, if a client, especially if a German client has a question about how many layers to dress the baby in or what her <laughs> room should be, I very clearly say, I, this is actually something I will not weigh in on because <laughs> even <laughs> a very factual question, like a question that should have a very concrete answer. It's a very culturally based question with a very culturally based answer. And I just wade into that. <laughs> this is so funny because I I just mentioned something about this the other day, how anything under like 40 degrees Fahrenheit or something like that, children are in full out snowsuits. It's so funny to me here. I have seen a child wearing like a wool hat at 70 degrees. <laughs> Oh man, it's it just cracks me. Um, <laughs> layering of little children very seriously here, and I love that you're just like, look, can't weigh in, can't weigh yeah. in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, with that note, we're gonna round the corner and head to home with the ending segment, which is called Zack Zack Zack. It's a rapid fire question round where I ask you three questions that you answer without thinking it, overthinking it. Just go with your gut. Are you ready? Yes. There's a pun coming your way and it's totally intended. Um, what music is keeping you afloat this winter? <laughs> <laughs> my In my kids' kindergarten, they pre-corona did every once in a while did like a disco dance party and they would put Baby Shark on and the kids would all dance. <laughs> and I was having like a low moment at home the other day and I put on Baby Shark and we danced around to it and... It was pretty great. Like it definitely got me through that day. So I'm going to go with that. We are in a tough time right now. We are in the depths of the Corona winter. So what is one place that you daydream of when you're having a little low moment like that? I, I mean, honestly, I really think that I daydream of of like hugging my family. But the physical place, I dream of being um, next to a lake in Vermont. If you could be any age just for a month, what age would you choose? <laughs> Oh, it's hard to not go back and just choose my favorite age. I think I would probably, my grandparents, who I have, it's been the hardest to be away from my 93-year-old grandparents in this last couple, you know, these last year, two years. Um, I think I'd want to try out 93 just to see if I could be as badass as my grandparents at 93. Heck yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Man, I hit you with some some pretty weird ones today. So you nailed it. You did a great job. I was really worried about like the. I think I listened to one where you asked someone about their favorite Schlager song, and I was like, oh, no, I can't do that one. <laughs> Listen, I'm not saying he asked for it, but he had a book where he re- he wrote a yeah, book, that's true. and in there he referenced Schlager, and so yeah. I thought it was fair game. Turns out. It was all a farce. Yeah. And now I outed him as a fake schlager lover. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Investigative journalism right there. At its finest. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we talked about a float a little bit before. Where can people find it? Where can people find you if they want to get in touch? So our website is afloatheidelberg.de. Um, so you can find us there. You can also find us on Instagram at afloat underscore de. Um, and a lot of it, the information is directly on the website, but I also encourage anyone who's feeling like it might be a resource that they're needing to just reach out to me directly and my information, um, contact information is on our website. Thanks so much for coming on the show. This was a really wonderful conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you again to Johanna for coming onto the show. You can find all of Afloat's wonderful programs through the links in the show notes. There you can also find the information to the webinar coming up next week about my career here in Germany. And of course, you can find the links to connect with the ExpatCast on social media or online. That'll be theexpatcast.com or at theexpatcast on Twitter and on Instagram. As I said at the top, I am always pleased and thrilled to receive some new ratings and reviews. Please go ahead and do that on Apple Podcasts or on my website or on Podchaser. Thank you as always goes to Amy Lundy Art for the logo and Side Hug for the theme music. There on Instagram at a hug from the side. On Thursday, I'll be back in your feeds with another Travel Germany episode. This time we're going to Berlin which might seem like a weird choice for a Travel Germany episode, but hear me out. We're going to visit two very specific neighborhoods that you might not have heard of and you're definitely going to want to learn more about. Get excited for that. Until then, have a wonderful week. Stay healthy and stay safe. Bis dann. Tschüss.